Well, this morning we're going from who Peter is to who we are to who God is. We're going to focus specifically on verse 2, but I'm going to go ahead and read through verse 12 because that's the text that I'll be preaching from again next week. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to pick it up at verse 2, 1 Peter 2, and I will read through verse 12. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We come covered in His righteousness. His blood sprinkled out. The atonement secure. And we come knowing that the Holy Spirit is present in us and in this place, illuminating these words. These words from Your Holy Word. And God, we need that work to be done that we might be made more and more like Jesus. I pray that You would bless this time of the preached Word. Change us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This weekend, several, almost a hundred, maybe just over a hundred of our middle schoolers have been on a retreat. Like last year, many of them came to saving faith as a result of the word being proclaimed on that retreat. So for the last several days, I've been praying that the Lord would move. My second born is a leader on that trip, a senior in high school, having the privilege of entering into life with those middle school girls, teaching them about Jesus. I'm sure some of you came to faith around that time. Middle school is a sojourn, isn't it? Listen to that. Mm. I've never met a person who said, I'd love to go back and do seventh, eighth grade all over again. It's painful. 
For some, though, the pain is greater than others. But I think like all of us, at least for a while, as you entered into middle school, you walked through the halls feeling like a leper, feeling like you were shouting unclean, feeling like you were lonely. The difference between you and me is that the first few weeks of middle school for me, is I didn't walk through the halls. I ran. I really mean this. I ran. Seventh, eighth, and ninth grade was junior high for me. Seventh graders and ninth graders are a great deal different. It's ridiculous that we were in the same school together called Western Oaks, but we were. Four elementary schools, closely connected friends in each one, now converge on this one new place where seventh graders are confronted with people much bigger, much older. And for me, that confrontation happened very quickly the first day. A young man named Drew and another man named Tommy, for whatever reason, fixed their eyes on me and said, that's the one. That's the one we're going to make feel misery. Now, my older brother and older sister were not in that middle school anymore. They moved on to high school. I had no protection. And so they began to attack me, antagonize me, make fun of me. The only advantage I had was I was fast. So I would get off the bus, see those boys, and then I would run through the school. I mean, literally through the school until the bell rang. Do you know how uncomfortable and awkward and embarrassing that is? Everybody looking at you, why is he running? I'm running because of Drew and Tommy. I would quickly slide into my classroom, and then I would wait. I would wait for everyone to leave, I would poke my head out the door, and there would be Drew and Tommy wanting to make my life miserable. So one day I said, I'm not running anymore. And they collapsed on me, and it was intense, and I was in terror. The terror that I'd felt inside my soul on the bus on the way to school, staying awake at night, fearful of what might happen, was now becoming a reality. And as they moved in, I'm quite confident to do physical harm. Another person said, hey, stop it. Who was it? It was another man, though my same age, named Tim. Tim Martin, a fellow seventh grader, from a different school than I was doing in elementary, he moved towards those two boys, those two men, and said, stop it. Why did they listen to him? Well, though Tim and I were the same age, I'm pretty sure Tim had been shaving since the fifth grade. <laughs> Tim was at least six feet tall, probably close to 200 pounds at this time. And they saw his presence, and they stopped it. They backed up. And I looked at Tim, and I just said, thank you. Tim became a good friend. We played football together all the way through. As you can imagine, he was on, well, he was the offensive line. <laughs> Tim's presence from that day forward protected me from Tommy and Drew. It gave me such confidence knowing that as I saw those two boys, I didn't need to run anymore. I didn't need to experience the social isolation of people looking at this seventh grader running through the halls. Instead of running, I now had swagger. I walked with confidence because I knew that there was a, a fellow friend who was going to say, hey, stop it. But then a few weeks later, something happened. Tim wasn't there. Tim wasn't in first hour. He wasn't there and all the anxiety that I felt came rushing back. And as I spoke my head out the door, Drew and Tommy also knew that Tim wasn't there. But something changed. 
As soon as I stepped into the hall, they moved away. Why? Because here he came. Here he came. Didn't say a word. Didn't have to. They saw his presence. They knew of his potential power. And they simply moved away. And I realized something that day. That Tim's reputation and our friendship would protect me. Because they knew that whatever he did to me, they would hear about it. And it was as if he was saying all the, time, all the time, remember, he is with me. He is mine. Now, junior high for people going through it is very real. And every pain that they experience is very real. It's very imminent, very intense. As we get older and we become thankful that the middle school and junior high years are over, the bullies don't go away. The pain doesn't go away. The reality is that this side of heaven, in so many cases, we're still like middle schoolers. We're still facing the reality of broken people doing broken things and living in a world that is broken all around us. The bullies aren't just people, bosses, employees. It's also things like cancer and bodies that deteriorate and hearts and minds don't think, that don't think correctly. Living in a broken world, we experience the pain that Peter is talking about on the sojourn. We experience the pain of wondering how much longer is this going to take? Am I going to be able to endure this trial? And what happens, even as you hear Paul praying this morning, and though you don't know the names of all the people he's praying for, there is great agony within this body. There are people who have just lost a loved one, people who are confronted with the reality that they may lose a loved one soon. There are those that are, are not facing that kind of brokenness, but they're, the, they're facing the brokenness of a child that has rebelled, a child that won't call home from college, a child that has rejected the faith. And throughout different stages and seasons of life, we all experience the pain of this sojourn. And Peter tells us we will. He calls it grieving. But this is what's important. In the midst of this sojourn, it is so easy for our eyes to be fixed on the pain. It is so easy for the pain to seem as if it is omnipresent. It is so easy for us to think that the pain truly is never going to go away. Or even if it will one day when I'm called home or Christ returns, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to sustain this life, this side. And there are examples all around us of how that seems to be unbearable. But Peter, Peter in these words, in the first part of his letter, he gives us a hope. He tells us that I am Peter, an apostle. And if we know anything about Peter's life, and we remember what Brent so, so beautifully taught us a couple of weeks ago, Peter failed. His faith failed. Peter knows about the journey. So Peter begins, this is who I am, and this is who you are. And what does he call us? He calls us elect exiles. It's an interesting phrase, and you're going to see phrases like this throughout the letter, throughout this journey we're on. Elect exiles means that in one sense, we are perfectly secure. We are his chosen people. We are elected his for all eternity. What that means is we can never be taken out of the grip of God. We're His. It's permanent. 
If you are a Christian, it's permanent. You're his. But there's also another side of this. That is, we're on a journey. And though we're deeply secure in Christ, we're living in an insecure world where people are constantly tempted to put their, in, their security in insecure things. And so we feel the pain and reality of this exile. And so what does Peter do? Peter moves then from who I am, Peter an apostle, to who you are, elect exiles, to who God is. And how does he describe him? In verse 2, Peter, with just this most eloquent stroke, as the Holy Spirit carries him along, he speaks of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This morning, I'm only going to focus on that one verse. And so I come to a verse, or really two verses, one and two, focusing on two of the most magnificent, marvelous, and mysterious doctrines of the Christian faith. What are they? Election and the Trinity. In 1994, when I went to seminary, I didn't feel like I did when I was going into middle school. I wasn't afraid of being chased. I wasn't afraid of being made fun of. Fun of. I went with the expectation that I'm going to come out of this place knowing so much that I'm going to be able to answer almost everyone's questions about anything they would ever ask about God and the Bible. I really believe that. I think most seminary students do. And that's a good desire. If you ask me, what two doctrines do you hope to know a lot more about? I would have said the Trinity. And I would have said election. I want to be able to understand those two doctrines with such clarity and conviction. And thankfully, at Covenant Seminary and other seminaries like it, we spend a lot of time unpacking these beautiful doctrines. But I want to tell you that in the end, leaving seminary, if you ask me, what's your favorite word leaving seminary? You know what the word would be? Mystery. Mystery. That though I know so much more about the Trinity, and though I know so much more about the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, which is right here, it's the word mystery that overwhelms me. And it was a professor by the name of Dr. Hans Byers that gave me the permission to really embrace that word, that God is far greater and far more mysterious than we can even imagine. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, if you weren't here yet, we're very comfortable speaking about the greatness of God, and we should be. And we're very comfortable Though it's a little more challenging thinking about the goodness of God in all of life. But this morning, as we come to this second verse, what we must focus on is that God is God. Yes, He is great, He's good, but God is God. 
And my hope and prayer this morning is that as we unpack a few thoughts about the Trinity and then the clear references that Peter gives us, that our understanding of God will grow. But even more so, I pray that the mystery of who he is, this transcendent God that is also living inside us, would overwhelm your heart and soul and my heart and soul, that as we leave this place, we would actually be different right now. Why? Well, let's talk about the Trinity for a minute. Peter is writing to encourage this group of elect exiles. He tells them that they're elect exiles. And then he says this about the Trinity. He references quickly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit continues to unpack that. So let's talk for a minute about the Trinity. What does it mean? If someone were to ask you to explain what Paul said at the beginning, when he, not Paul the apostle, but Paul the pastor here, about the Trinity, what would you say? If you're visiting for the first time and you don't understand the Trinity, and a person visiting reached over to you and said, could you explain the Trinity for me? I don't understand. What would you say? I want to try and help and Keep your bulletin as a point of reference later on to go back to that Belgic confession. But here's what we mean by the word Trinity. First, we believe, all Christians must believe this, that there is only one God. There is one God who eternally exists. That means from all eternity. He eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. Each person in the Godhead, each distinct person in the Godhead is 100% God. This is not a pie chart where the Father is a third, the Holy Spirit is a third, and Jesus is a third. That is not what the Trinity means. The Trinity is one God, one essence, but three distinct persons. How do we know? Because the Bible clearly teaches that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. This also is not three different ways of looking at God or three different roles that God plays. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Nor, and some people have thought this is true, is it the Father who then becomes the Son, and the Son who then becomes the Holy Spirit? That is not the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is one true God in three distinct persons. Each person is fully God. Let that soak in. Each person of the Trinity is 100% God. Three distinct persons, one essence. Why am I repeating this? Because on this journey towards the enchanted city, on this journey towards our eternal home, when we experience all these trials, this one true God is living in you. This one true God is living in you. 
The Holy Spirit is inside every believer. And the Holy Spirit is not just the power of God. The Holy Spirit is God in the very same way that the Father and the Son are God. Eternal. Think about that. The beautiful hymn that we began singing about God's creation, about the glories of God all around us, and human beings being the apex of His creation. What's even more glorious than that is that believer in Jesus, that God is living inside you, and that God is everywhere present. One God, three distinct persons. Wayne Grudem says something that I find fascinating about the Trinity. He says, when we speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, we are not speaking of any greater being than when we speak of the Father alone, the Son alone, or the Holy Spirit alone. So when we speak of the Holy Spirit being in us and in this place, we're speaking of the one true God in all of his glory and all of his power present in us. Peter knows the journey's hard because the journey of his own life has been difficult. And from the outset, what he wants the people to know is that there is a triune God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in persons, leading them, who is with them, who will never forsake them. Think about that. Let it soak in. Peter then moves beyond just the identity of these names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and reveals to us something distinct about each of them. I want to talk about each of these phrases for just a moment. The first phrase Peter gives us in verse 2 is this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, before I talk about the foreknowledge of God the Father, I want you to know that this one true God, one in essence, three in persons, all are involved in our rescue. Every one of them are involved. You'll see it in those first 12 verses. Jesus Christ dies. His blood is sprinkled. He lives the righteous life. He's resurrected from the dead. Then in verse 12, you see that it's the Holy Spirit that moves along the preached word that any of us could believe. But Peter starts here with the foreknowledge of the Father. Election, not the one on November 8th. Election, predestination. These big words that Christians talk about and have for centuries have often caused conflict in the church. Some people will say things like, well, I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe in election. That's for you Presbyterian and Reformed people. I've often been asked, why do you believe in election? Why do you believe in predestination? Well, the truth is it's because it's straight out of Scripture. It's here. To deny words like foreknowledge or predestination or election is to deny parts of Scripture. But I think if we have embraced these doctrines, we must understand that it's still very complicated and it is very mysterious. Many people can't buy into those realities. Do you know why? I think it's because deep down in us, we still want to have something to do with our salvation. Deep down in us, we, we want to be able to say, it really was not just about God's choosing me, 
And it certainly is more than that. It's mysterious. But Peter teaches us from the beginning that there is a people, and this people is God's people. And this people, this group, this nation, they have been elect from all eternity. What that means, as Peter teaches us, is that before creation, God chose us. Think about that. That means if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, even if you don't profess faith in predestination or foreknowledge, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, the Word of God tells us that He chose you before all creation. That's amazing. But these doctrines, they can create frustration. And when we wrestle with a word like foreknowledge and try to understand it, frustration leads to one of two places. It either leads to faith, that I really do believe this, or it leads to either more frustration and then probably ultimate foolishness, where you say, I can't believe it. Now, I want to be clear. There are Christians on both sides of the issue of election. You need to read about that. I'm not going to unpack all of that this morning. There's not time. But I want to tell you that the place that the most mature believers land throughout history is in a phrase simply, God is God. And God's orchestration and His attributes of this thing called salvation in the history of redemption is far, far, far greater than we can fully comprehend. Because we're not God. God is God, and we're not God. And when we can settle into the reality that there are things about God and His understanding and orchestration of the world, we settle into the mystery. And the mystery is a safe place to be because it leads us to worship, to awe and wonder, like David who said, your knowledge is beyond me. It's too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. It's amazing. The Lord calls us his elect before all creation. It's straight out of the Bible. I'm not making it up. But one thing I do want to say about the word foreknowledge, and this is important, the word foreknowledge here does not mean that God looked forward and in his omniscience he saw those that were going to choose him. And therefore, through that foreknowledge, these people are elect. That's not what that word means. This word means a select knowledge. This word means that a sovereign God has selected his people. And we are the elect. You know what that means? If you profess faith in Jesus, the Father has chosen you. Somewhere in your soul, at some point in your life, even if you've wrestled with these issues for a long time, you have to say this. Why me? God, why me? And there's only one answer. Because of my love and grace. There's nothing that God saw in you or in your future, in and of yourself, that would cause him to have chosen you. 
He chose you because he loves you. On this journey, Peter is saying, first and foremost to this people, here's who I am as an apostle. Did Peter choose Jesus or did Jesus choose Peter? What was Peter doing when he met Jesus? He was fishing. Jesus pursued him. What was Peter doing when Jesus pursued, G- pursued Peter and forgave him of his sins? He was fishing. Jesus went to that shoreline. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this God pursues his people. Why? Because it's his sovereign choice. Immediately, people go and wrestle with the justice of God, the fairness of God. Let me just say this. God is God. You and I are not. And when we try to place our man-centered views on things, watch how quickly you began to distance yourself from what the Word of God actually says. I'm going to move on. Peter doesn't just give us the word about the Father's knowledge, foreknowledge, and the election. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Okay. I'm only going to touch on the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to save the part about Jesus. Obedience to Him and sprinkling with His blood for next week. The Holy Spirit... Peter tells us, is sanctifying us. Sanctification means two things. It first means that we are set apart. And so if you are a Christian and there was a moment in your life when you said, I believe, whether it was at 6 or 16 or 36 or 56 or today and you're 86 right here in this place, If you profess faith in Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has done a work in your life at that moment or at this moment to set you apart. You actually begin to realize that you are one of God's people. He set you apart. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is two things. First, it is a permanent work. In other words, you right now, because of the life of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ, you have been set apart and can be called holy. It's permanent. In 2.9, Peter says, you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. But it also means something else. It's not just permanent. It's also progressive. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit is making us more and more and more and more like who? Say it. Jesus. He is making us more and more and more like our Savior. It's progressive. Your hatred of sin grows. Your awareness of sin grows. Your desire to fight against the flesh grows. Your ability to see that your flesh is really weak grows, and so your dependence on the Lord grows. It is the Holy Spirit making you more and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. And then, as I mentioned, or as Peter mentions, it ends with this obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. I'm going to pick that up next week. But let me just say this. We 
have been called by God from all eternity. The Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, so that we, by His grace and for His glory, can obey our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said it. It is to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit, so proving to be my disciples. In order for that to happen, the blood of our Savior had to be shed. He had to go on His own sojourn that you and I in Christ could be saved for all eternity. My friends, Peter is the one who at the very beginning takes us to the Trinity. Peter is the one at the very beginning of his letter takes us to election. Peter is the one that takes us to this place so that while we're on this journey, we can see that God is God. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that is marvelous about these statements. And yet, Lord, in that which is marvelous also exists the limits of mankind, our inability to comprehend completely, our inability to see clearly. And so we trust you in the work that you're doing in our lives. Lord, there's mystery here that leads us to worship you, for you are the one and only one who is worthy of our praise. You and you alone are the one that can make us see. So, Father, would you cause these wonderful truths just taken straight out of your word to, to swell in our hearts, that we might see the tendency to place ourselves ahead of you, even our own understanding. And instead, Lord, would you give us this place of listening, a place of underhearing, of submission and obedience, where we would see that you indeed alone are God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We pray as we've been taught. In your name, amen.